The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And as always, lots of activity in the technical world. Audacity 3 is here. That is the uh, the free audio editor. I love Audacity. Hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about webcams in the news. I mean, you'd like to know about the history of some of the oldest webcams in yes. operation. Uh, happy birthday to email. Email is now 50 years old. That's insane. I know. Who would have thought that? Mm-hmm. A hacker has been bragging about how easily he could divert your text messages. And he was able to log into accounts with two-factor authentication. It's quite a scary event. And we have today in Profiles in IT, John Warnock. He is a co-founder of Adobe Systems and hailed as the modern-day Gutenberg because he developed the protocol that allowed the printer to print exactly what was on the screen. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc Jim and the respondent, Mr. A Big Voice. Respondent, as ev- or is it as despondent? As that the... Uh, that the non-fungible token craze, NFT craze, might be getting out of control, I present a New York man who sells one year of audio farts for $85 (laughs) on NFT. What do you think of this, Doc? Is this a market bubble or what, your faithful listener? Well, Bob, that... That is ridiculous sale, I have to admit. This Brooklyn man was was trying to mock the whole NFT craze. So he sold a year's worth of, uh, of audio of farts of he and, and his three buddies on, uh, on, uh, as an NFT. It was an audio clip, 52 minutes. They call it the uh, one calendar year of recorded farts. And he sold it for $85. Now, Jack Dorsey sold his first tweet as a non-fungible token Which- for $2.9 million. I could say is comparable to what the other guy was selling. <laughs> yeah, I, the word. I know. It, uh, it, it was, it, I mean, the guy was trying to show that NFTs are really ridiculous. But I contend that non-fungible tokens uh, actually have a place in this world. Uh, in 2020, there were $250 million worth of sales of non-fungible tokens. Now, they may be uh, a novel idea, but they're an attempt to answer the an old dilemma. How do you create and preserve value around an object that can be reproduced? 
Now, NFT stands for non-fungible token. It's, it's a unique, special kind of unique digital asset that's recorded and stored in blockchain so you can tell who transfers it to who and you can see in the art world what they call provenance. Um, this allows you to certify certain versions of a digital item. So, for instance, Jack Dorsey, he had his original tweet on his computer, so he certified it as the original tweet, and the certification of that original tweet was, in fact, the NFT that was attached to it. Now, this is actually solving a problem that we've had in the art world for the longest time. Artists thought that art would just go down the toilet when photography came along because you could photograph something and then you could just reproduce it, reproduce it, reproduce it. Or you could take a, um, a lithograph and produce many, many copies. So the art world had to figure out a way to preserve value. So for instance, in the case of photographs, uh, maybe an artist would uh, authorize the release of 10 photographs and he would number them. And then with each of those 10 photographs would be a certificate of authenticity. And he would only issue the certificate of authenticity for those 10. Now, there may be thousands of copies of that photograph out in the world, but only 10 had the certificate of authenticity. I mean, this has been, this has been used in the art world for years. Galleries do it. So we had the problem with digital assets. How can we achieve the same effect, having a certificate of authenticity. And that's how they invented the non-fungible token. I actually do think it makes sense, um, but it's just that people don't understand it. And it also solves the problem of provenance. You can see that you got the NFT from the artist. And then if you sell it, they can see through the blockchain who you sold it to. And so there's a very uh, well-defined trail of provenance. I'm actually thinking that NFTs may start being applied to the art world, the real art world. So whenever an artist releases a painting, he attaches it to an NFT. And then when that painting is sold, the NFT is transferred through the blockchain. I think it's really a good idea. Now, I, that guy in, bought in, uh, in, uh, in Brooklyn, he was just making fun of it. But I still think NFTs are a good idea. We got an email from Hawk in Bowie. Dear Adok and Jim, I just read that Yahoo is deleting all emails from inactive accounts. I want to delete my Yahoo email account because I never use it anymore. But I've got thousands of important emails in my Yahoo email account. Can you tell me how to move the Yahoo emails to Gmail, to the account that I just opened, Hawk and Bowie? Well, uh, Hawk, many people are switching from Yahoo to Gmail these days. It's kind of common. So it's really easy to import your uh, Yahoo emails into Gmail. Gmail really set it up easily. You want to go to the go to a browser, log into your Gmail account, and then there's a little gear icon in the upper right-hand corner of that settings. Click on that. And then right at the top, it says See All Settings. Click on See All Settings. And then there will be some tabs at the top of the window. One of the tabs is you have to scroll over to it a little bit to the right. One of the tabs uh, says uh, accounts and import accounts and import is at the top click on that accounts and import and then you simply scroll down on that page and click on import 
mail and contacts and a dialogue box will pop up and you can type in your email address, whatever it is at yahoo.com. And, uh, and then you click the continue button. It will ask you a few other questions like what is your password and all that sort of thing. And then follow that. And then when you're done with that, uh, with that series of windows, uh, it will just start transferring all the emails. And if you've got a lot of them, it may take a while. So you can just go into other tasks and Gmail will, will just keep on working. Now, once it's complete, you'll see a new label in your Gmail account, which is labeled Yahoo. So you just put, you, you just select the Yahoo label and all your Yahoo emails will show up. And uh, once you're sure that you've got all of them uh, transported to your Gmail account, you can go ahead and delete your Yahoo account. That was really a good question. We got an email from Lily in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, I took an eight-year-old HP laptop to Best Buy over the weekend. I want to upgrade the RAM. I've actually got four gigs of RAM. I want to go to eight gigs. <clears throat> so I took it in. The guy there said, oh, this laptop is, this, uh, this laptop is just too old. You don't want to upgrade it. You want to buy a new one from me. And the right. guy wouldn't. Let me upgrade my laptop. He just wanted to sell me a new a new laptop. Well, I left. I still wanted. I still want to upgrade my RAM. I like my old laptop. It's fast enough for me. Do you think I could do it myself, or think a repair shop? I should go to a repair shop. Well, um, Lily, uh, almost any local computer repair shop could uh, could upgrade your RAM. It's I mean it's a ten minute deal. It's really quick. But actually, the fact is, I think you should do it. It's not that complicated. Uh, you can go to a website, which will figure out exactly what RAM you need. It's crucial.com, C-R-U-C-I-A-L, crucial.com. You click on that. Then once you're on the Crucial homepage, you click, uh, you click a box where you agree to the terms, and then you run their handy system scanner tool. It'll download your computer, it'll run on your computer, and after about a minute or so, it'll tell you exactly what RAM you need to upgrade your laptop. It'll give you the exact name and everything. And you can buy it from Crucial, or you can write down the name and say you could go to Amazon to check out if it's, um, if it's easier. Now, the nice thing is Crucial on their website has videos that shows you exactly how to change the RAM. And I mean, it's really easy. You just pop off the, there's a compartment at the bottom of your laptop that covers the, uh, the RAM. You unscrew that, pop it off, and you can pop in new RAM. Yeah, I, I, it's really easy to do. Just make certain you turn off your laptop and unplug it, uh, and uh, you'll be good to go. But watch the video on Crucial if you're a little afraid of that. Now, if you just are too terrified of, of, you know, of, of doing that yourself, you could take it to a, a shop, but they'll probably charge you a minimum charge to do it. It might cost you $50. A lot of these shops have a minimum charge. So... I recommend you do it yourself. We got an email from Knock in Cleveland. Dear Tech Talk, I have to write many, many reports with foreign phrases in them. And they all have these special characters with little accent marks above it and everything. And, um, and that, I don't have that on my Windows computer. How can I easily insert those into my document? I mean, they're coming up all the time, and I've got to find a way to do it. Well, Knock. Uh, the good news is it's very easy to insert special characters with what they, those are, those little marks at the top of the letters are called diacritical marks. And they indicate that that vowel, typically they're vowels, is, is pronounced in a certain way. 
So the easiest way to add diacritical marks to your document is to enable the Windows Touch Keyboard. Now, the Touch Keyboard automatically appears if you're using a Windows tablet or if you have a PC that's in the tablet mode. But if you don't have a touch screen, you can use the keyboard icon that appears on the taskbar. And um, now, when I, when I checked mine this morning, uh, my keyboard icon was not on the taskbar because I have a touch screen. So I didn't really need it, but I wanted to make certain I could do it for people without touch screens. So if, if the keyboard icon, icon does not appear, you just hover the mouse over over the taskbar in the bottom and hit the right mouse button in a menu and a, and a, and a pop-up window will show up and then you just can see which items are displayed in the taskbar and you just click on the item that says show touch keyboard menu. Now the nice thing is once that keyboard shows up on the screen, now if you don't have a touch uh, screen, you can just hover the mouse over it and you can click on a key. So if you hold down one of those keys in the pop-up keyboard for like uh, a few seconds, uh, several other keys appear, all with diacritical marks above them. And so then once those appear, you click on the one that you need for the diacritical mark. It is really easy to use. It's a great feature. That was a good email. We got, it. We got an email from Trevor in Philadelphia. Dear Tech Talk, I like to visit the website uh, of various artists. I love digital art. You know, I think Trevor might it might be in the in the market for buying some NFTs. Really, recently I noticed a tag: "Support me on Kofi." K O fi What is Kofi? I've never seen it before. Is it another MFT? I'm confused. Trevor in Philadelphia. Well, Kofi is not an NFT. It's a website. It's a platform that's similar to Patreon. And it allows people to make donations to various, uh, you know, artists, typically creators. It's an easy way to fund or simply supplement the income of an artist to help them pay bills. It's kind of a combination of Patreon and Deviant Art in a personal blog. It's more casual and approachable. It's just it's a variation of a way to contribute to artists. However, Kofi differs from Patreon in a few ways. It works more as a one-time tip jar. You don't see Patreon, they like you to subscribe to the artist and you give him so much every month. And then the artist makes a commitment to keep adding more art to his um, to his collection, which you have access to then. But Patreon is kind of just, just a one-time deal. Or um, Kofi is just a, a one-time platform. Uh, <clears throat> and they... they um, Donations can be virtually in any amount. They're not in preset tiers like they are in Patreon, where you can be, uh, you know, a friend or you can be different levels of of, of subscription. And uh, and then be, and for that reason, Kofi users, Kofi artists, are not. They don't have to post new content on a regular basis because there's no subscription. Now, Kofi supports over 500,000 creators, uh, writers, illustrators, developers. But not very many famous users. Most of the famous people go to Patreon, Patreon, uh, which caters to all the celebs. So if you, if you want to contribute to your artists, you could go to Kofi or to Patreon if, if they're on there. Or if you want to buy their art and you love their art and you want to have it hold value, get an NFT, non-fungible token. I'm quite certain that those artists on those sites are going to move to the NFT world. 
We got an email from Dennis in Pittsburgh. Dear Tech Talk, I hate daylight savings time. Every time the time changes, my automatic clocks are wrong. Some change the correct time on their own, and others just stay the same. I know where I this know. is going. Yeah, you have that problem? Well, not really. No, I have two clocks that are that need to be reset, but it, you know, it's not that hard. It's not that. But hard, I know where but... you're going with this. Hmm? You I know said where I know I'm where you're with going with this. Well, this here's the thing. Um, these clocks uh, use a signal from a radio station located in Fort Collins, Colorado. The radio station's call letters are WWVB, and it transmits at a very low frequency, 60 kilohertz, which means it travels long distances. And the time is sent, and it's and the time that is transmitted from that radio station is based on the atomic clock there at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Now, if your if your clock which has to receive that signal. They call it an atomic clock, but it's just getting a radio signal that has atomically validated time. If your clock cannot receive the signal from Fort Collins, Colorado, it, it won't reset. So if you're in the basement or on the wrong side of the house. So, I mean, I have, uh, I've got eight atomic clocks at my houses over the place and like five of them changed on their own and three didn't change. So what I have to do I take those clocks, I put them in the window facing west. Ah. Now, facing west. Out to, for me, it's west. Actually, you're, see, you're in Dennis, you're in Pittsburgh, Kansas, you'd face west too. So you face Fort Collins, uh, Colorado. Now, the thing is, that radio wave has got to bounce off the ionosphere to travel very far, and that doesn't happen in the day. So you have to leave it in the window overnight. And in the morning... It should all be switched for you. Wow. Listen, we love your email. We do. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, 107.7 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County at 104.5 FM. Federal News Network. You can learn more about the programs at Stratford University and learn how to attend by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, 
and IT careers, here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Where did he go? IT. Hang on. Let's try that one more time. He was he was being shy. In IT. There, there go. he goes. Finally. He's going to have to start paying attention, Jim. Yeah. Today we're going to feature John Edward Warnock. John Edward Warnock is a computer scientist best known as co-founder of Adobe Systems and hailed as a modern-day Gutenberg. Gutenberg, of course, is the man who invented movable type and transformed the entire publishing business. Warnock was born October 6, 1940 in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, when he was in the ninth grade, he flunked ninth grade algebra. Oops. And he took an aptitude test as a sophomore, and they said, now, John, you just shouldn't go to college. You just don't have the aptitude for it. I mean, this is a problem with a lot of these this guidance that people get in, um, in high school like that. Well, he ignored those teachers because the next year he had a really good teacher by the name of Barton. And Barton made math fun and exciting. And uh, he just really dove into it. He loved math. He had an extreme, extremely high aptitude for math, the exact opposite of what that advisor the year before had told him. And most of the uh, students that got out of Barton's class got advanced degrees in mathematics or the sciences. He was an inspirational teacher. I mean, I, I felt, you know, I feel this same thing. When I was in high school, I was taking ninth grade algebra. And this teacher taught it like some sort of mechanical rote deal. It was completely boring. I wanted to do things differently. And she said, Rick, I got a very low grade in algebra because I just couldn't stand what she did. But for me, I had a teacher called Mrs. Fintel. And I took geometry the next year, and she realized that I'd just like to do things on my own. So she just let me prove all of the theorems by myself. And I didn't have to follow the book. And she came, she said, Rick, she says, you're the first student I've had who can just think how to prove these theorems, and you can just visualize things mathematically. And she inspired me, and I ended up going to physics and taking a boatload of math. But if I had listened to my ninth grade pe teacher, who really probably wasn't very good at math, I'd, I'd have just given up. I was fortunate that my dad had given me a growth mindset, so I, I didn't fear failure. And I think probably Warnock's parents gave him the same thing. I, I didn't now, do very well in ninth grade um, ge algebra either, and I, don't, I think it was me because I, I just I'm just, not wired that way. I waited a year to take algebra too. It was such a bad experience. Well, a lot has to do with the teacher, Jim. I'm telling you, people have the feeling that somehow math is hard. Uh, what happens is that if a teacher, if, if, if there's a critical step missed and you're missing some element along the way, the teacher doesn't identify it, then, then you, it, it's hard to get back on track. And a lot of teachers that teach math are not good mathematicians. So uh, you never know, Jim. You could be a genius in math and just never discovered it. I'm doubtful. <laughs> Okay, he went on to the University of Utah, where he got a BS degree, bachelor of science degree, in mathematics. <laughs> hmm. 
and philosophy in 1961. Then they got a master's degree in mathematics in 1964. And then a PhD in electrical, electrical engineering. And for his master's degree, there was this uh, mathematical paradox that had not, not been solved for like 200 years. And he solved it. It was an extremely original master's thesis. Now for his doctoral thesis, uh, which, he, uh, which he completed in 1969 when he got his doctoral degree, he invented the, war, the Warnock algorithm, as it's now called, for hidden surface determination in computer graphics. So if you, if you draw a three-dimensional object, you can only that, that's not transparent. You can only see the surfaces that are facing you, and the surfaces on the other side of the object are hidden. Well, you have to be able to calculate what is hidden and what is visible whenever you display a three-dimensional object, and he invented a very efficient algorithm for doing that, and that was his doctoral dissertation. Now, between his master's and his PhD, I mean, he, had, he got married, first of all, after his, after his bachelor's degree, and he, he had to start working. He had to earn money. You know, being a, a full-time student really doesn't pay the bills. So he ended up getting a job at, at a Firestone uh, shop in town, retreading tires. Now, he did that for a while, and, uh, and he decided he hated retreading tires. <laughs> Yeah, I would too. So then he started teaching math. So he started teaching math, and um, and uh, but you know, but math teachers don't make much money, and he could barely make ends meet. So then uh, he decided he needed more than a master's degree, and he also decided that mathematics, while it was something he loved, was probably not something you can make a lot of money doing. So he decided to switch to computer science. And he got his Ph.D. in computer science. Now, he relocated his family to Vancouver, Canada, and he got a job with CompuTime Canada. Now, he moved up there in 1969. In 1970, CompuTime <laughs> went bankrupt. <laughs> so he's thinking to himself, man, this is not going well for me. You know, retreading tires, can barely make ends meet as a math teacher. <laughs> First company job I get, they go bankrupt. So then he decided in 71 to take a job with Computer Science Corporation. And he was there for a while. And then finally he decided, well, hold on, I'm, I'm, I'm at a good solid government job. So then he went to Goddard Space Flight Center in Washington, D.C. And he and his family moved to Maryland for that. Now... In 1972, he took a job uh, working on supercomputers as head of operating systems with the Evans and Sutherland Corporation. Now, they had a contract with Ames Research Center in California. So he, he moved to California and he worked for ENA working on, uh, working on supercomputers. Now, while he was at Evans and Sutherland, he developed the underlying concepts which led to the page description language which would ultimately be used to display very complex graphics on a printer. Uh, it was, the, un, it was the, the sort of the seed kernel idea and some of the basic code. That was all he was at ENA. Now, ENS, ENS uh, wanted him to move to Utah. I mean, he just, I mean he's, he's been moving his family all over the country. They said, hey, we want you to move to U Utah now. And, uh, and he said, no. I'm not going to move to Utah. I'm sorry. I'm staying here. I'm not moving anymore. 
So he quit ENS and he got a job with probably the best place you could imagine, the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center Park. I've talked about these guys before, the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, and they had been working on uh, advanced computer systems, you know, graphical user interfaces, what you see is what you get. And so all the things that were motivating to him were central to what of the research activities there at Park. So he went to Park, and he developed graphic imaging standards. Now, based on his prior work, he developed a, a program called Interpress Graphics Language, which was used for controlling printers. So when they took they 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 had graphics on the screen, they could use the Interpress language to send script to the printer. The printer would reproduce what was on the screen, and it would be what you see is what you get. So then he went to the um, the folks there at um, at the Xerox management, and he says, you know, this is really a great program. Uh, I think we should you know build Xerox printers. And and the Xerox management, they said, look, we're a copier company. We don't do that. So he left. I mean, actually, they wanted that. They wanted <laughs> Xerox didn't take advantage of any things at Park. The all of the uh, the WYSIWYG, the uh, graphical user interface on the computer went to Apple, and that was the basis of the Mac. All the printer technology went to the, the company that uh, Warnock founded, Adobe. Ethernet, which was a networking protocol, uh, went to a, you know, was all transferred to a company that Bob Metcalf started, 3Com. They just basically didn't take advantage of their research. It's a, it's a classic failure of corporate, corporate innovation. So after they, in 1982, after the Xerox did what, what they do well, so many times they refused to commercialize Enterprise. So he, along with his co-worker there, Dr. Charles Gretzky, founded Adobe Systems with $2.1 million in seed money from a, from a VC. The founders named the company after a creek that ran behind their homes. Never they knew that. Huh? I never knew that that's where that came from. Yeah, so it ran behind their homes, Adobe Creek. I always thought it was like a like an Indian hut, Adobe. Yeah, <laughs> but right. That's what I thought. That's where I thought the name came from. But actually, Adobe Creek ran behind their homes. Now, at their new company, they developed an equivalent technology to Interpress called PostScript. Now, in order to avoid any copyright infringement issues, they developed it from scratch, and they brought it to market in 1985. And it was the underpinning, the software underpinning for Apple's LaserWriter. And of course, the guys that developed the Mac at Apple had worked at Park. So he was working with his same buds. And so he then developed the software that ran the Apple LaserWriter. Uh, it's um, quite an interesting development. Now, in 1986, after the huge success of the Apple LaserWriter and PostScript page description language, they went public. In the spring of 1991, Camlock outlined a system called Camelot. <laughs> now, Camelot was really, they said, how can we take a complex document on a page and then save it in a format that we could send it to someone and all the fonts would be properly displayed? So the problem in, it was that if you have a complicated document, there's all kind of fonts 
and you send the document to somebody, you've got to send all the fonts and everything with it, or they won't be able to render it as you're rendering it. Or, and the same fonts have to be installed on their computer. So he created a, a protocol where you could take a complex document, you could encapsulate it in a particular format, and all the fonts needed to display it would go right along with it. And that was called, as we now know, the portable document format, PDF. So he invented the PDF in 1991, and that is ubiquitous around the entire world. Mm -hmm. Now, 93, three years later, they came out with Adobe Acrobat. Acrobat use, utilizes P, PDF to help businesses convert print documents to digital format. That was followed by PageMaker, which was a um, desktop publishing software, created documents heavy on graphics. By 1996, uh, they had 2,200 employees and almost, almost 2 million registered users. By the late 1990s, Photoshop was used by 93% of web developers. When PageMaker 6 was released, Adobe launched a web design tool called Adobe Go Live, so you could design web pages on the fly. Now, they had a range of products for web, for print, for video. That included Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator, Adobe Live Motion. Adobe Premiere, Adobe FrameMaker, and Adobe After Effects. Now, Warnock holds seven patents. Uh, he's got some hobbies, photography, you'd expect that, I think. Skiing, web development, painting, hiking, curation of rare scientific books. He's got this secret room in his house with all these rare books. And he also collects Native American objects, pottery. He sounds like he's a well-rounded guy. Yeah. Yeah, he's a very well-rounded guy. He's received many awards, the Marconi Prize, the Annual Medal of Achievement from the American Electronics Association, the National Medal of Technology and Innovation from Barack Obama. That's one of the highest awards given to scientists and engineers. He's a fellow of the National Academy of Engineering, American Academy of Arts and Sciences. His net worth, because that's what everybody wants to know, as of September 2020, is around $305 million. And he's donated a lot to educational institutions. The impact of his, uh, of his contributions to desktop publishing are as revolutionary as Gutenberg's printing press was in its day. Warnock's PDF standardized reputation of digital documents is used daily by virtual everyone who has access to a computer. So there you go. Everything you'd want to know about John Warnock. John Warnock co-founder of Adobe Systems, hailed as the modern-day Gutenberg. Hope you were paying attention because the knowledge you just gleaned could turn into free lunch when you play the pop quiz coming up here on Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, 107.7 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Stratford.edu is where you go to find out about the programs at Stratford University and uh, to sign up to attend classes there. We'll be back with more Tech Talk in just a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome back to the Classroom of the Airways. Not simply a radio show. No. Now... We have to assess whether our audience has been listening with the pop quiz. If you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms when they open up after the pandemic. And you'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Earlier in the show, I talked about John Edward Warnock, who's the uh, co-founder of Adobe Systems and hailed as the modern-day Gutenberg. They started, he and his uh, partner started Adobe Systems. Where did the name Adobe come from? All right. Pick up the phone. If you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone, give us a jingle. Dialing from west to the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east to the Adobe Mudflats in Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're building your igloo out of Adobe in... Canada. Call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized hourly using Adobe Scrubbing Bubbles, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Well, thank you. Let's talk about news of the week. Adobe uh, Odyssey, Audacity 3 is here. Now, Audacity is, three, is free audio recording software, and it's been updated to version 3.0. Now, Audacity 1.0 was originally released in the year 2000. Its functionalities and features are basic, but the software's been a godsend to creatives who want to record and edit audio without going too deep into processing technicalities. Now, version 3 comes nine years after version 2 was released. And people were getting a little worried. Now, it's been hyped as a major update, but not much has changed in the design and the flow. 
The biggest change, the introduction of a new format, AUP3, which when you save an Audacity project now, it ends a problem which they had with the previous uh, uh, project file format that it would not encapsulate all of the data that was needed to reconstruct the project. They fixed that so now you can save the complete project and get it all back. So people are really happy about that. The new format keeps the project organized, co cohesive, makes audio editing faster and, and on most machines, thanks to fewer files being edited. Now the developer also fixed over 160 bugs. So if you wanna get a free audio editing software, you can simply go to audacityteam.org, audacityteam.org, and download it for free. All right. Continue on, Doc. Okay. We'll get one more here. Let's talk about the trivia of the week. Webcams in the news. Now, Fogcam uh, sprang into life 1994 as a student project at the Department of Instructional Technologies at San Francisco State University. And of course, Frogcam was, uh, was monitoring the frog, the fog out there in San Francisco. Fog, frog, whatever. Yeah, the fog, yeah. And you, you, and you, can, you can see the image for Fogcam. You just go to fogcam.org, www.fogcam.org. Now, it is the oldest continuously operating webcam in the world, starting in 1994 and is still operating. And Wikipedia, uh, which of course is the uh, world-renowned expert on facts, has confirmed that they are the oldest operating webcam. And you can actually um, see an active image. I went there and looked at it this morning. Yeah. This morning, I did not see any fog there in San Francisco. Now, they, they but they were not kind the of a, first webcam. Yes, they seem to be kind of uh, uh, out of the uh, off the bay. Their location, so they may not yeah, get as much they're, fog. Yeah, they're not as, on the bay. No, yeah, no, because they're they're on San Francisco State University. I don't mm -hmm. think they're I don't think they're Bayside. They've had to move it a few times in order to keep it from being shut down. I've heard. Uh, yeah, they have because it, you know the university didn't want to support it, and then they were going to shut it down, and then uh, there was this major outcry. So then the Board of Trustees at the university decided to continue funding it. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it probably doesn't cost much to keep it up. Yeah. Now, they were not, however, the first webcam. Now, the first webcam was actually the Trojan Room Coffee Pot. <laughs> this is great. At, at the University of Cambridge. Now, that came online in 1991 before, before the Internet existed. I mean— the, the web wasn't invented till 1994 by Tim Berners-Lee. So 1991, uh, you, you, you had the Internet, but you didn't have the World Wide Web. You didn't have web pages, but you had Internet, and it was just Internet protocol to, to get everything done. So it came online in 1991. Now, this was the problem. These guys were in this uh, uh, research center there at University of Cambridge, and the coffee pot was down in the electronics lab that they called it the Trojan Room. That was the nickname. And... Researchers would have to walk all the way downstairs across the building to the Trojan Room to get a cup of coffee, and half the time the coffee pot would be would empty. be empty. And they said this is just not right. <laughs> so uh, so they put up a a webcam which would then keep the coffee pot uh, you know in view, and then before they would march down to the Trojan Room, they would check the webcam to see if there was coffee in the pot, and. Um, and so they were they were quite happy with this. Now this webcam was uh, 
was ported over to the web in 1993, but unfortunately, they discontinued the Trojan coffee pot webcam. So now it was not even the longest one in existence, and it has been replaced by the fog cam. Pretty amazing. All right, Doc, we got somebody who'd like to play the game. Let's go to line one. We're talking to MC in Silver Spring, Maryland. Good morning, MC. How are you? Just fine, Jim. Thank you, Doc. Thank go ahead, you Doc, and ask a question. Early in the show, I talked about John Warnock. He's the co-founder of Adobe Systems. Where did the name Adobe come from? Wow, well, it came from a very creative idea. Uh, they named it after a creek behind the home. That's right. Correct. Excellent. Very Correct. good, MC. Thanks for listening this morning. Thanks for calling. We'll send that uh, certificate out to you in the mail. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1077 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Learn more about the programs at Stratford University and how you can attend by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Ooh, you, this week, yeah. in the bunker. You'd think I've with been, the warm weather, the door would loosen up a little bit, don't you? Uh, you would think so, but I don't think it's getting any better. No. But this week, I've been pondering this idea of fixed growth versus growth mindset. And, and John Warnock is a case study in that. Now, growth mindset is a term that we hear a lot about now. Let's see, what, uh, let's talk about what it actually means. Psychologist and Stanford University researcher Carol Dweck, uh, has shared that students who develop a growth mindset believe that hard work, perseverance, and learning from mistakes gives them the ability to learn and continually develop their knowledge and skills. Uh, so they don't mind failure because they figure they're going to learn from the experience whether they win or fail. Students with a fixed mindset believe that learning is based on intelligence and that they already have whatever intelligence they've got, and it's unchangeable. 
So when a student has a fixed mindset, is doing well, they believe that it's based on their intelligence and that they're smart, therefore they're doing well. On the other hand, when a student with a fixed mindset fails at something, they immediately question whether they're smart enough. And for this student, every low test score, every wrong answer, every time they find themselves struggling, serves as proof that they've reached the limit of their potential. So let's look at John Warnock. He failed algebra. Now, if he would have had a fixed mindset, he would have concluded, you know, I'm just not smart enough. I better stay away from math. Yeah. I like just better I go into basket weaving. <laughs> and uh, uh, on the other hand, a student with a growth mindset would say, well, I didn't really do well that time, but I learned a lot of math and I could learn a lot more. So I'm just going to hit at it again because I think I can develop a math aptitude simply by working on math more. And so you just head right in to whatever, whatever the challenge is, and you figure you're going to learn from it, win or fail. And John Warnock clearly had a growth mindset. Look at all the setbacks he had. He, you know, he, he barely could make ends meet as a mathematics teacher and definitely not as a uh, tire <laughs> retreader. Um, and then he switched to uh, computer science he got a job with the company that went bankrupt almost immediately. Then he got another job with Computer Science Corporation that only lasted a year. Then he got another job with Goddard that only lasted a year. Then he got another job out in California with a company that after a year they said they want to move him to Utah. <laughs> and then finally he landed up at Palo Alto Research Center. He went through an enormous challenge in order to find the right place. But because he had a growth mindset, he never gave up, and he didn't let that guidance counselor and that teacher in high school dissuade him. I think that many kids are harmed with bad advice up early that, you know, that affects their entire approach to things in life. Now, there's a lot of scientific evidence that suggests the difference between those who succeed and those who don't is not the brains they were born with, not how smart they were at birth, but their approach, their approach to life, and the messages that they receive about their potential and the opportunities that they perceive they have. In other words, everyone is capable of learning mathematics when given the opportunity. You know, look it, at Mr. Big Voice and how far he's gone in, in this world. Exactly. Uh -huh. He has just really <laughs> taken off. I mean, I, you know, I've seen him there working calculus there in the studio, Jim. Exactly. Yes. He's, he's trying to show off. He's a math wizard. He really is. And, and the thing is, I think mathematics is particularly uh, subject to this particular thing because so many people believe they're not good at math. And yet I believe if I could spend a couple of weeks with them, I could show them how easy it is because it's beautiful how it all fits together. But you have to see sort of the architecture of it all and how it fits. It's just not a bag of rules. I think this and, is a new class you should teach at Stratford. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I used to teach this stuff to my students. You know, we'd, when I teach networking, we'd have queuing theory, and these students would get so hung up on the, uh, the equations and statistics. How many people know the equations of statistics, but actually they don't under, understand statistics at all? So I just used 
a bowl of colored marbles and we'd pull them out and and we would develop different probabilities based on the marbles. And, and they learned in the gut what, uh, what it meant to have a discrete Poisson distribution. And they understood queuing theory, not from a bunch of equations, but just because how marbles came out of the, the bowl. I mean, it's the same thing. You've got socks in the drawer, different colors. What's the probability that you pull out two socks that are the same color? Yeah, yeah. Good so it's not, it's not really very complicated, uh, but we just are teaching math so that it seems complicated, and I think it's being taught by people that don't understand it. What? But is that why? Is it because it's being taught by people who don't understand it? Is yes, that why it's being taught that's incorrectly? exactly right. Because there are people, they're not mathematicians, they were, they were trained as teachers, and they were assigned a math class. So they're just going by the book, and it's not, it's not based on their own knowledge. They're just, they're just going by the book. I, I remember I was in, uh, I was, I was in college, and, uh, you know, I, I had my first uh, year of uh, calculus with, uh, with this teacher. I'm not going to use her name. And she just went by the book. She was not a mathematician. And I remember we got the natural logarithms. And, and I, I just asked her, I said, why? I mean, we've already got logarithms. Why do we need natural logarithms? All she could do is just pump out the formulas. So I, I went to this old bookstore and got a historical mathematical texts that have been written around the 1840s, just around the time when natural logarithms came out. And they spent about three chapters explaining why natural logarithms were so perfect. And they showed how nature follows the rules of natural logarithms, and that if you use natural logarithms, the equations to describe nature are significantly simplified. After reading those two chapters, I got it. Maybe this but, is why I had so much trouble with freshman algebra because, well, my algebra teacher was also the lacrosse coach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that I is, think that's that why he was there. That is the problem, Jim. And, and what happens is that it, that experience mars you for life because you believe you're not good at math, and oh, it's just not true. I, you know, I tried to help my daughter with algebra once when she was in high school. I almost had a nervous breakdown. I couldn't figure it out. I, yeah, Jim, it just it's 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 that deep wound. <laughs> I think so. Scarred for life. Yeah, me. and so the thing is that Warnock was given, I guess by his parents, this growth mindset. And my dad gave me a growth mindset. You know, he he basically never banged on. He never just pounded on me to get good grades. He just said, "Rick, just learn," and uh, and. You know, I, I got that bad grade analogy. He didn't say a word. Uh, he just he just said, "Well, you, you'll you'll get it. Just you know, just move on." And Good. and so he gave me this confidence that I could do anything. And uh, and 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 then I got to Miss Fintel, and she, because I learned math in a different way, I visualized it differently. I didn't like to follow the book. She just let me do what I wanted to do. And she says, wow, Rick, you're pretty good. Yeah. I mean, if I'd have had another by-the-book teacher, geometry would have been a disaster. Well, they, they would have unwired your brain. Your brain yeah. was wired in a way that worked, and you managed to do it yourself, right? Because I can, I can go to math, and I can visualize the answer. I mean, I, I can sort of visualize it. And uh, even before the equations are figured out, I just am able to sort of jump through that. And uh, and Miss Fintel. Miss Fintel, I should say, uh, not Mrs. Miss Fintel, 
she recognized that. And so, uh, and so just like uh, Warnock had uh, a really an inspirational math teacher, so did I. So when I read that, boy, I identified with it big time. Oh. But for you parents out there, don't let your kids get discouraged. Encourage them. And if you want to, if you, now Jim, if you want to uh, learn math easily, go to the Khan Academy. I'm telling you, the Khan Academy has a series of like five-minute videos, six-minute videos. It'll walk you through every step. They have broken up the knowledge into little fine steps. And I'm telling you, Jim, you spend a weekend with the Khan Academy, you're going to be a math expert. I may have to do that. I may have to get rid of a Tech Talk weekend when I listen to all of our replays and just do the Khan Academy. Yep, said. I think you yep. should do that. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Everything you want to know about a growth mindset and John Warnock. So let's talk about China restricts Tesla of vehicles over national security concerns. Now, we know that we're in a major uh, battle with China. Yeah. Uh, China's been used, stealing our IP technology. Huawei is being barred from the country from installing any 5G technology. First of all, because we think it's a security problem. Secondly, because we think they stole a lot of the technology from our place. And so this is like, payback. So they said, okay, uh, we just don't trust Tesla cars. We think that all of the cameras in the Tesla cars that they use for self-driving that are actually spy cameras. And these Tesla cars are driving around collecting data about China and, the, and they're sending it all back to the U.S. government. Now, of course, that's complete BS, <laughs> but that's what they're saying. And it's retribution against our actions against Huawei. And, uh, but the funny thing is, you know, Elon Musk, 30 to 40% of his Teslas are sold in China. And uh, he's got, he's got a manufacturing plan in China that makes, uh, uh, batteries. So I think he, I think he'll work it out with China eventually. Have let's to. talk, let's talk about email. Happy birthday. What what time is it now? Uh, you've got maybe, you don't have time to do this, Doc. We're running out of time here. It's, it's oh, crazy. we are really running out of time. I have time. to do it next oh, okay. week. Um, well, let me let me tell you, uh, <laughs> well, how long do we have, Jim? I just can't see the clock You have here. like 30 seconds. Oh, good. Because I, I'm going to start playing the music right now. iPhone has issued a security update, emergency security update. It came out yesterday. Uh, it turned out that the WebKit has a major flaw in it. They are worried about this. Make certain that you update your iPhone or your iPad to the latest operating system right now. Okay. Listen, we love your emails. We'll get back to you as soon as we can when you send them to us. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.